Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Shirley Ann, thank you so much for being here for part two. I think it's really important for people to get to know your work a little bit more, but also your personal journey that has turned from personal experience into professional experience. And we'll focus on that uh, in today's episode. But first, please reintroduce yourself to folks. Sure. Hi, everybody. I am Shirley Yanoff. I am the, in my day job, I'm the Director General of Communications at the Department of Justice Canada. Um, and I am a mother of two awesome kids, have a great partner, uh, try my level best every day to make a difference on top of getting all the work done um, and really, really happy to be here. Um, it's really an honor to share um, what I've been able to learn and accomplish with others um, over the years. So like, this is really exciting. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've learned a lot from you and I've really appreciated our relationship over the last few years, especially since 2020 when we first met. And uh, and out of that continued partnership and, and communication and conversation between the two of you, two of us, I realized that you that it was very your voice was very much needed in our book, The Conscious Communicator. And you can, were very generous in contributing an article. And the article name is Compassion, Curiosity, Empathy, and Action: Ensuring Our Communications Efforts Respect Vulnerable Audiences. Now that is not a performative title <laughs> that is that is not you know just surfacey right that's that's getting to some heart no in there. there there's some blood sweat and guts in there so i'd like to understand a little bit more of like what what was your personal journey like what was your what were you exposed to what did you witness what did you what got you into this work to where you got to a place personally that you're off the sidelines and started demonstrating not only a personal way, but also in your professional experience. Well, I, I, I have to give a nod to just the um, amazing opportunities I've had at the Department of Justice and then previously at the Department of Indig Indigenous Affairs and Northern Development, where um, often people think government is a, you know, sort of, um, a big brother nanny state sort of situation or is there to provide certain programs and services. But both of these departments um, deal with um, some of Canada's most vulnerable or most marginalized individuals um, here at the Department of Justice. Um, you know, there's all different kinds of approaches to the, you know, managing crime or criminal justice system, but I've been lucky to be working 
um, to support an agenda that is about addressing systemic racism and discrimination in the criminal justice system. So that means um, trying to support, you know, policy um, that uh, tries to address the very harmful impacts of a justice system that is unfair to black, indigenous and other marginalized people while still keeping people safe. Um, So it's a complex, complex problem. But for me, I guess I've, I've never been drawn to, um, you know, the big international files or um, major service delivery. You know, you, your question makes me really think I like to be working in places where we're helping people and um, helping people who don't normally maybe get helped. Um, And for me, it's funny, I'm getting, it's my mom's birthday today. Uh, She would have been, she would have been 92 today. Um, She passed away a few years ago. So it's just kind of reminding me, I think a lot comes from, you know, the way I was raised. my parents were both, in many ways, um, orphans. Um, my my dad was orphaned at the age of seven um, when during the middle of the depression, um, and my mom was raised by a single mom from the age of six onward. Uh, my grandmother didn't remarry until much much later in my mom's adult life, and so they both really struggled, but. Um, there was never any bitterness. They were also both deeply religious, which is something that I, I don't share, but the values that they instilled in all of us um, was really about community and taking care of each other and um, valuing things that aren't monetary because we didn't have a lot of those things um, and giving back. Um, my dad used to, I'll tell the story quickly. My dad who's passed away as well Um I remember one dinner he brought home a gentleman from the church who um, was down on his luck and was struggling and came into the church when my dad was cleaning up. And my dad said, oh, do you need a meal? And he brought him home. And my mom kind of said, like, what the heck is this guy doing at my kitchen table? I have young teenage daughters. But my dad was like, no, like people deserve a hand. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm sure as a 12-year-old, I was kind of like, ew, who is this guy doing here? But that, that experience also lingers with me, my father treating this man with so much respect um, and uh, welcoming him into our home. And then my mom was always, always active. I used to go on meals on wheels with her. I hated it. Like I hated all of these things when I was a kid, but at the, at the time, but looking back on it, it just showed me how important community is and I got to see that there were people out there who weren't just like me. There were people who were better off than me. And then there were people who are really suffering. And so you can't, you can't go through your life thinking that those people don't exist. So um, that's probably the core of it. Um, and then came my independent thought <laughs> and uh, really um Figuring out what feminism meant to me, um, what post, you know, post I went to graduate school, I studied cultural, feminist cultural politics and feminist cultural studies, always been fascinated with how women are represented. And then in doing that work, you start to see, well, white women are represented maybe poorly, but wait a second, what's, what's this question of intersectionality and, you know, that being entered into my, my consciousness and 
recognizing and building again on that concept that there's just everybody isn't like you. Right. And uh, that doesn't mean and that's a good thing. And then how do we how do we work together? How do we um, do things differently? Um, And then some seminal work experiences for me early on were uh, I worked as an intercultural outreach worker in an um, in a urban center in Toronto, a high crime neighborhood, um, very ethnically diverse neighborhood. Um, And I worked with um, uh, mainly Jamaican Canadian single moms and um, the Sikh community to help their children integrate better into the school system and get them supports. So there again, I ended up in people's homes, right? Trying to get kids to come to school or try to figure out what the problem was and um, why this kid was struggling or a mom who couldn't make it to meet the teacher because she had to work in the evenings and, you know, trying to bridge that gap between educators and, and families. And so I saw a lot there that someone was really hard to see, but, um, Again, uh, community and how important it was to have resources in place. And then I spent five years in a part-time job. It was probably the best job of my life ever, working for Planned Parenthood here in Ottawa. And I ran a a theater program on healthy sexuality. It was uh, kind of improv and, and by, for, and about youth. And uh, every year they would go around and tour and I was able to attract kids from all kinds of walks of life. And if we didn't have those, that's who we brought in to talk to us so that then when they went out and they talked about, um, you know, sexual violence in relationships or they talked about racism um, that they heard from people who experienced it if they themselves didn't and then tried to show respect for that in the shows that they did. Um And then again, you travel all around a community and you see that not all high school students are the same, right? So constantly being reminded, I think, Kim, that um, society is diverse. It is richer because of it. Every interaction I had made me a more complete person um, and made me a more, helped me be a more compassionate person. Um, Also, like, you know, people call you on your shit i can i swear on your show they call you on your shit right when you're when you're when you're off balance or you're talking on their behalf and nothing like a strong single mom to tell me why she's not coming into the school why she's not crossing that threshold and the disrespect she may have experienced so you know sort of how do um you you can't help but internalize those things um and then i think Finally, I guess I two two other things. Um, uh, I grew up in northwestern Ontario. I know that my great grandparents got very cheap land um, that they built a built a family on. And while my mom and my grandmother may not have been well educated because of that land, which was taken from Indigenous people, you know, I learned over the course of my career and my better understanding of of colonialism and indigenous rights and issues here in Canada um, that I benefited from their loss. And while um, you do struggle with whether or not as a, as a white woman in Canada, even though I was really working class, right. um, I struggled, you know, with not wanting to feel guilty about that, but wanting to do something about that. 
So how do you acknowledge your past and, and the privilege that you have and then, you know, form the relationships, which I have many, and do the work that I've had the opportunity to do to try to change that relationship between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people in Canada? And so I often introduce myself as someone, especially when I am working with Indigenous people, who, where I grew up and, and, and my story um, as an acknowledgement of um, me knowing that I got here um, because other people weren't allowed to. Um, so, you know, as much as I'd like to say I'm responsible for my own success, we all know that that's not necessarily true. And then finally, I think I would say I'm the mother of a trans, a trans um, woman. My daughter is trans. Um, and let's just say Quinn keeps me on my toes. And I've had to really think about what it means to be a woman. Right. Like this debate going on in some feminist circles and sadly, horrifically, what's going on in the United States. You don't see it quite the same. We don't have legislators doing it in Canada yet. We have the opposite for now. But that that, that hate is just like, you know, made me really, you know, if a black woman can be a woman, how can a trans woman not be a woman? How can a white woman not be a woman? Like, don't don't not my job to define what woman is. It's my job though, to create a community of women. And so, um, so my daughter Quinn has played a big part in that as well. So um, always learning, always changing, uh, keep on your toes. So I hope that answers. Hope that answers. Yeah, absolutely. It's a long story. Well, but it's a long story. It's a rich story and you're in touch with your story. And I think that's where some of us as communicators can really tap into understanding our motivations of why we see what we see, say what we say, do what we do, if we don't connect to our stories and really name and kind of walk through what our upbringing has been like, what have we been sheltered from, what have we been exposed to, et cetera. That influences the language we use, the breadth of understanding our mm -hmm. audience that's receiving our communications. Uh, and... It, it helps us keep in mind that other people are having a different experience, which you mentioned over and over again. So getting in touch with our own, own story is a big part of our growth as DEI communicators. You mentioned the word privilege in there. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. You're, you're a white woman. <laughs> you know, there is privilege that comes with that. There's advantages that, that you and I have had from that, that, Part of the deal is for us to be oblivious to it. That's kind of how we've been socialized is to be oblivious to it. And then we walk into stuff all the time that we end up using it as a weapon um, and we may or may not know about it. So do you have a story of a time when you really recognized uh, your privilege and what you do with that privilege that you now recognize, whether personally or professionally? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'll go back to sort of my, maybe my early years. I spent 18 years working at Indigenous Affairs and, and Northern Development Canada. So um, there was, there was one meeting I went to and because I'm from Northwestern Ontario and my hair was very dark back then, I wasn't, I didn't have my COVID gray then. Um, and I, um, I have an olive complexion. Um, 
I was sitting at a table of, it was a meeting of a number of indigenous women leaders. And I was there just to do like set up the media relations table or whatever it was. And, um, I was sitting at the table during lunch and, um, one of the first nation women at the table looked at me and it's a very common question where she just said, so where are you from? What's your community? And I didn't understand it. Like there, I didn't understand it. And I said, Oh, I'm from Thunder Bay. She goes, no, 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 no. Where are you from? Like, who are your people? And I went, Oh, Oh, Oh no, actually like I'm not, my mom was, my mom was, my mom's Ukrainian. My dad's German. Um, I'm not, I'm not indigenous. I'm not first nation. And she just went to me. She goes, well, you got dark skin and you got dark hair and you grew up in Thunder Bay. You've probably been treated like your First Nation. Mm. And made me think, one, how generous of her to even afford that to me, recognizing that I, I wasn't. I did grow up in a particularly, sadly, racist community it's 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 a suffers a lot of problems um and um but it did make me look back at start to look back at the experiences that i've had and i don't know whether i agree with her i don't think i was but it it did trigger that in me about wow like what did she experience when she was in my hometown because of it right and and made me think how how important it was for me to never ever let anybody go around thinking that I am indigenous and that assumption that can happen or be made. I'm the champion for indigenous people. I've worked on indigenous issues. So people often assume they make assumptions. Um, so, so for me, it was about, no, like I need to, I need to make sure that people know I'm an ally here. Um, I do not want to ever, ever give the impression that I am, co-opting someone else's experience um even if it might give me a little bit more credibility in a room to just let people maybe think that um and that was very early on um and then i must admit um when <sighs> emotions and reactions were very high after the death of george floyd the murder of george floyd we talked about this last in our last chat um, there's lots of action that's been done um, across government here. And we talked a bit before about the sort of within the bureaucracy, um, there is a commitment, an anti-racism and anti-discrimination commitment across all departments um, to take certain action to address discrimination in the workplace, racism and discrimination in the workplace. And um and in that, we created in our department a new anti-racism and anti-discrimination secretariat. And new people came in who didn't know me. And we did a, a, a formidable job of ensuring that the people that were brought in to work on that weren't white, because we're not a really particularly representative um, uh, department of employees. And I realized that despite the fact that I think I'm a pretty good person and I've been fighting the good fight and I've been an ally, ally is that not everybody there trusted me. Um, that, and at first I was, I, I'm going to be honest, I was hurt. Like, what do you mean they don't trust me? Right? Like, look at all this stuff that I've done and I've been in this department for six years and blah, 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 blah. And then I went, wait a second, they don't have to trust me. 
right? I have to earn their trust. Um, and it's not about me, right? It's about what I can do. And, um, you know, and there were probably a couple of very uncomfortable conversations where I walked away kind of feeling sorry for myself. And then it's like, no, like, no. First of all, I'm a member of the senior executive at the department. Um, you look at me, I have a master's degree, I have a bachelor of education, and I have an honors English degree. Um, I'm in the highest communications position you can get in my department. Um, I have access to all the levers of power. Of course, I'm privileged. Of course, they don't need to trust me. Of course, I need to show them that I can be trusted and prove it through action, not just because, you know, I have a nice bio. So that was that was also a really good reminder as well. Um, and uh, and like I said, my, my kid keeps me on my toes as well. And, you know, we have, you know, like really, really, really thinking um, about what it means, um, what it means to be a part of um, a diverse community where maybe I think I grew up on the edge because I was working class and maybe it's a big deal that I, I'm the first one that has a master's degree in my family and wait, don't you know, my dad only had grade eight education. You know what? Look where I got despite all of that. So there's a reason for that. And that's because I'm white. Big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share. Now it'll be available everywhere all at once. You can now pre-order the DEI Communications Blueprint. <sighs> this is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients all over the world. And by taking this video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain confidence, and shift DEI messages to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we threw in some more bonuses for those who pre-order ahead of our fall launch. So go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com. That is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started. And that's because I'm cisgender and that's because things were easier for me than maybe my indigenous or black um, or um, colleague was who's disabled or has a disability. Um, it, things were easier for me. So, yeah, I got to move further faster than some of my peers. So, yeah, I, I've got to take responsibility for that or ownership of that, but can't change it. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm not good at my job um, or that I'm not a good person, but I got to keep proving it if I want to, if I want to, and I got to keep doing, making the actions. You can't rest on your laurels. If you're going to do that, get out of the way. And lift all boats. And, and it, it's the naming. It's, it's redefining what it means to be white. Right. And, and being empowered by that in, in, in a way that has a lot of humility, but, us talking about it openly and building the skills to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, this is incredibly important as part of the work. It's not enough to not be racist. For example, we must be anti-racist. And so I've got two more questions for you. One is 
What's your advice to other white women who are in such a place of power? If we look statistically in corporate communications in the U.S., it's like in the 80 percentile of folks, of, the, of white women, uh, white people, but primarily white women demographically are in these roles, especially the chief communications role, VP role, et cetera. So, and so they're in this place. And while they've experienced sexism, uh, they may not be in touch with their, you know, racial identity and their ethnic, ethnic diver, uh, identity and what it means in the workplace and what to do about it, how to have the conversation, how to be anti-racist with this place of power. So what kind of advice do you have for other white women who are empowering communications? Well, um, one, I think you need to, we all need to um, really think about how we got where we got, right? Like, of course, we, you know, I still experience sexism in the workplace every once in a while. Um, and if you're still going to experience it, but um, for me, it is now about, Maybe I can just talk about it that way. It is more about, I used to be building my career for me. And now I'm here. Like I don't really have much further to go in my career, right? So for those of us who are like me, who are like Gen Xers, and, you know, we've, we fought the fight, we got our elbows up, and we made it through the 90s. And um, here we are at the top of the corporate calendar, corporate the corporate hierarchy. Um and even though we're leading what used to be like the pink ghetto, like let's face it, like PR, all of it, we're, we're always kind of fighting for our reputation, for our, for being included in the conversation. You're there. So what are you going to do with that power? Are you, are you still going to just be getting your career going? Or how do you create space for the other voices? So one of the things that I do is I'm the champion for indigenous people. I do wish it where was an indigenous person at my level who could be at the executive table to represent those interests. There isn't. So I am there. Um, and I am constantly making sure that those issues are being raised and that when I raise them, they're informed by conversations with indigenous employees here. Um, is that part of my job? No, but it's part of my corporate responsibilities. So when I used to focus on building my career, now I'm building my legacy. Mm. And what I want to come behind me is a whole bunch of people who don't look like me. I want to create the space for the people who don't look like me and don't think like me and who can bring a different perspective to the table because there was a time where that was me. Right. People were making someone made space for me um, and and for us. So now I find those places. So um, you've really got to check your values and be value driven, not career driven. Um, and so that's what I invite other women who are in senior positions to do is to of course, you're going to continue to do good work. You're going to continue to um, give your best communications advice. But what is what is your legacy going to be, right? What is it that Maya Angelou says? Um, 
it's something to the effect of people won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you treated them. How you, how they made you feel. Yeah. How you made them, how you made them feel. Yeah. Right. How you made them feel. So, um, that's, am I always good at it? No, because sometimes my job overwhelms my ability to, you know, the directive to get things done, um, overwhelms my ability to always um, be able to be as consultative or as self-reflective as possible. But every opportunity I do have, I'm trying to influence to build an organization that when I leave it will be stronger than when I came and will be more diverse and more inclusive um, and more welcoming um, so that those people will stay. Um, so, yeah, that's why I talk about building things. got to build it. Just don't. Yeah, I hope that answers. Yeah, don't maintain, but build and create. And, and we're, we're in this prime opportunity because everything is shifting right now, shifting in power, shifting in, you know, um, ideals, perspectives, strengths, talents, skill sets. Everything is shifting right now. And so communicators mm -hmm. can really lead this work, which leads me to my, my last question for you. And that is, what's the risk sure. in the near and or long term uh, of with organizations not doing this work, not doing the introspective personal work that we started off this episode with, and then it, having it show up in the powerful roles that we have, which is what we just talked about there. What is the risk of doing nothing in our organizations? And the, the risk, risk of, of doing nothing. nothing. Yeah, and not communicating like we give a damn. Well, if you're communicating with and to employees, if that's part of your job, it is part of my job, you risk losing them. You risk losing the very voices you need in order to have evidence-based decision-making policies that um, aren't that are that are um, in the interest of, but also informed by the experiences of the people who like live through these policies. Um, you're gonna lose talent. They're gonna go somewhere else, um, and and then, but most importantly, you're gonna like like I don't want to. Who wants to work someplace where everybody's the same? Like the ability for that organization to learn and to grow and to adapt is lost when you lose those people or when you have them and you don't value them because sometimes people can't leave. There's a lot of reasons why people stay. So on an employee communications side, you just your credibility is gone. And, um, and of course, anything that you communicate needs to have actions behind it. I'm definitely not into the performative part of communications um, on D&I stuff. It needs to have concrete policies and plans in place and accountabilities. On an external side, like I don't deal with profits and I don't deal with like market share, but I do deal with the issue of, of ensuring that Canadians specifically um, can have confidence in their criminal justice system. So if we have a criminal justice system that only speaks to a certain class or certain race or age or demographic of people, then there's a whole bunch of people who are going to lose confidence in a system that's supposed to um, protect all of us and serve all of us. So that's a foundational piece of our democracy is a functioning justice system, right? Um, so 
I think, I think it's quite, um, the stakes are pretty high if you're not reaching out and representing the voices of all of those people and considering their experiences um, when you're trying to, for me, explain the kind of policies that we're doing. So it's really about relevance. It's about learning and adaptability. Um, and it's about attracting talent and keeping the confidence of the people that your organization is set out to serve it, to serve or to meet the needs of. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your generosity of your time and sharing your personal story, the vulnerability that comes along with that. Thank you. Thank you. And I think a lot oh, of us are welcome to get to that point to be as, as vulnerable and forthcoming, but that's where we do need to get to in order to be able to stand on solid ground and do the solid work that is required of us to lead this work as communicators. Shirley Ann, thank you so much for your time. Any last parting words? You know, just really be true to yourself and know, know what your values are because they'll guide you and come back to them. Write them down if you have to. Um, they're your guideposts. And if you really, really believe in this work, you've got to integrate it into the way that you work and, and into your value system. Um, it's your leadership style, but it's also the core of who you are. Um, and bring your real self to the table. People want to see that. People want to see that. And you can grow. You can make mistakes. Oh, my God. I have far too many messages for people. Anyways. <laughs> that could be a whole podcast episode right there. Part three. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Here's the mistakes I made and what I've done to learn through them. Yes, absolutely. So, Shirley Ann, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to, to have a conversation with you. Thank you for sharing with our audience. Thanks so much. I, I love doing it. Thanks for the opportunity, Kim. Take care. And we'll put together a, a number of things within the show notes. There's a number of things that Shirley Ann talked about, things that the Canadian government has made, you know, made commitments to and, and mandates to around anti-racism, anti-discrimination. And there's a variety of uh, very, very, very interesting policies that we can learn from no matter where we are in the world. There's something to be learned uh, with what Canada is doing in this work in particular. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one on one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.